I don't usually make personal comments, but let me just say, it's good to be home. <laughs> Been traveling a good bit lately, speaking in other places, but there's no place like home. I love you folks, <laughs> and it's so good to see your face this morning. Are you familiar with the phrase, the term swan song? It's actually a very ancient term that goes back to Greek culture over 2,500 years ago. Some of the ancient Greek writers had this belief that swans that were silent in nearly their entire lives would sing a beautiful song right before they died. And that term swan song has been around now for millennia. It usually refers to a song that is either written or sung right before the writer, the composer, or the singer dies. Moses had already written a couple of songs. Are you familiar with the songs of Moses, plural? Exodus 15. In Exodus 15, Moses wrote this song after God delivered the children of Israel through the Red Sea. The, the song by the sea. It's a glorious song, a song of victory, of triumph. Psalm 90, a psalm written by Moses. It's a song written from the perspective of a seasoned old man. Shows such wisdom. But before he's about to die, Moses is going to be directed by God to write one more song. It's Moses' swan song. Join me, if you will, please, in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 32. Last Sunday, Pastor Mark preached a powerful sermon from Deuteronomy 31, describing that transfer of leadership from Moses to Joshua. Uh, one of the memorable statements from Mark's sermon last Sunday was this, leaders don't just leave their post, they leave a legacy. Amen and amen. But you know, looking at the history of God speaking through Moses, <clears throat> Moses was not merely wanting the people to follow Joshua, the next leader of the people. He wanted the people to follow God. He wanted people to believe God and to follow God's word. And so here at the end of his life, before he dies, God directs Moses to write this song. He wants Moses to put the instruction God had given into this song that the people would learn, they would sing, and that they would pass down to the coming generations. I love this statement from Pastor Mark's sermon last Sunday. A church's songbook today will be its statement of faith in the next generation. There's a lot of wisdom in that statement. Let me just say it again. A church's songbook today will be its statement of faith in the next generation. It's important what we sing as the people of God. And I'm so thankful for Marcos and others who lead us in worship. That so careful, they're so careful to lead us toward Christ in our singing. Amen? So you're open to Deuteronomy 32 now, and so am I. What's the background to this song? I'll tell you what, we're actually going to back up even more. I, I know I'm repeating something Mark said last Sunday, but just to get a running jump, let's go back to chapter 31 and just read verses 16 through 22. I want to remind us, or if you weren't here last Sunday, to show you how this song came to be. I'm in Deuteronomy 31 now, beginning at verse 16. The word of God says, And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. In other words, die. 
Then this people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land they are entering, and they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them, and they will be devoured. And many evils and troubles will come upon them, so that they will say in that day, Have not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us? And I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil that they have done, because they have turned to other gods. Now, therefore, Moses, write this song and teach it to the people of Israel. Put it in their mouths, that this song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. For when I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which, was, which I swore to give them to their fathers, and they have eaten and are full and grown fat, they will turn to other gods and serve them and despise me and break my covenant. And when, many, and when many evils and troubles have come upon them, this song will confront them as a witness, for it will live unforgotten in the mouths of their offspring. For I know what they're inclined to do even today, before I have brought them into the land that I swore to give to Moses. So Moses wrote this song the same day and taught it to the people of Israel. So I'm calling this Moses' swan song, but the honest truth is Moses wasn't the composer. <laughs> he might have been the singer, but he wasn't the composer. God actually wrote this song. He's the one who put it into Moses' heart and mouth so that he would know it, he would teach it to the people in a way that could be taught even to the coming generations. Why do you think God gave Moses this song to give to the people? What was its purpose? Well, if you notice what I already read from chapter 31, it was to serve as a witness, a witness of this renewed commitment of the covenant that God had made with his chosen people. The book of Deuteronomy means, some of you know this, Deutero means second, Nami means law, second law. The first law was given earlier in the Pentateuch, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. But now a whole new generation has been raised up. The old generations died off in the wilderness. The younger generation is about to enter the promised land. And before they enter the promised land, God says, in essence, to Moses, do a review. Give them a review of the whole covenant. And that's what the book of Deuteronomy, in essence, is. It's a second law, not a new law, but a reiteration of the, the original law of God, the covenant that he made with the people through Moses. <clears throat> and now God wants this song to be written and memorized and sung for the coming generations so that the people would remember the law of God, the covenant of God. So in a sense, I mean, it's not complete, but in a sense, this song that we read in Deuteronomy 32, it's kind of like a summary statement of the whole book of Deuteronomy. Do you know how songs sometimes get stuck in our heads? <laughs> there are certain Disney movies I've never seen. But when I hear the grandkids singing songs from those, the songs get stuck in my head. <laughs> you, you get songs stuck in your head sometimes. God wanted this song to get stuck in the heads of his people. He actually says that. Verse 21, for it will live unforgotten in the mouths of the offspring. Chapter 31, verse 21. That was very intentional. God says songs tend to stick. 
And so Moses, now that we've wrapped up this iteration of the law, I want you now to put it in song form and teach it to the people so they can teach this song to their kids who will teach it to their kids who will teach it to their kids who will teach it to their kids. I want it to get stuck in their heads. It will be a witness to them so that if they ever deviate from keeping this covenant, this song will come back to mind, reminding them what they knew about and what they committed to. So what kind of song is this? This is actually a very long song. What kind of song is it? You know, we have songs in our culture, don't we? We have love songs, we have patriotic songs, we have holiday songs, we have folk ballads. You know, we have all kinds of songs in our culture. Well, what kind of song is this? It's really hard to put one label on it, so let me put several. It's definitely a worship song. Did you notice, looking, your Bible's open to Deuteronomy 32? Look at verse 3. Moses says, for I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. And so this is a worship song describing the greatness and the goodness of God. The song's now been around. This worship song's been around for well over 3,000 years. But it's not just a worship song. It's actually a prophetic song. Not that God gets real specific in the song, but he speaks in general terms that are unquestionable, that Israel in the future, at least many, maybe most of Israel in the future, are going to turn their back on God, despite the fact that he's been amazingly kind to them. So it's a worship song. It's also a prophetic song, giving them some insight on what's coming up. But it's also a teaching song. They were to teach this song to their children as a warning of what will happen if they forsake the Lord, and follow false gods. Now, a pastoral comment or two here before I move beyond that. It's a teaching song warning them of what will happen if they turn their back on God. God isn't telling this prophecy to them just to scare them or satisfy some curiosity. He's painting a picture of the future apostasy of at least most of the people of Israel so that at least some of them who are truly converted will listen and take heed to the warnings and not fall into that sin themselves. God wants this song to strengthen his people to stand strong whenever it's tempting to go with the crowd and just turn your back on God and to run after the idols of this world. He wants these people to resolve to stay true to God. He's teaching them this. And as I was reading Deuteronomy 32, my mind was drifting to 2 Peter. And let me just read this section to you. I want to show you something about the purpose of these warnings of hard times. This is from 2 Peter chapter 3. You should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through the apostles, knowing that first of all, listen to this, knowing, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Now, if you're thinking the last days are somewhere out there, we're living in the last days, and I'm not saying that as some sort of prophecy preacher. The last days started when Jesus went back to heaven, and they'll continue on until Jesus returns a second time. We're living in the last days. And Peter says here, you, you heard... From the Lord, you heard from his apostles that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing. So what should be our response as believers? Go and hide? Just melt in fear and go along with it? 
He ends his second letter by saying this. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, you've been told beforehand this is going to happen, take care that you are not carried away and by the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. And so Peter writes there by the Holy Spirit, I'm telling you folks, it's going to get hard for Christians. There are going to be people, maybe religious people, who scoff. They scoff at God. They scoff at God's word. They scoff at God's prophecies. And they say, where's, where's all this coming everyone talked about? Where's this return of Jesus that you guys have been talking about? I don't see Jesus coming back. And they scoff and they mock and they say, everything will always go on as it always has. Forgetting, on purpose forgetting, the cataclysmic events of creation, Noah's flood, the fall. They deliberately forget all those things that God has intervened in catastrophic ways in the history of the human race, and he will do it again. And Peter says, you know this ahead of time. God wanted you to know this ahead of time, that times will get difficult. Scoffers will come scoffing. I'm telling you this so you would stand strong, Christian, so that you would stand strong and not give in, so that when Jesus comes back, you'll be found faithful. So grow. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So what was true for the Israelites over 3,000 years ago in the days of Moses, that's still true today, isn't it? We haven't even read from Deuteronomy 32 yet, have we? <laughs> Let's read the first three verses. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass, and like showers upon the herb. And I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. As Moses begins this song, he says, I, I want my teaching to fall like gentle rain, like the dew. I talked to a few of you before the service who peaked and read, read Deuteronomy 32 already. And you said, that didn't sound like gentle rain to me. <laughs> you know, this particular song is actually has a lot of comments in it about the judgment of God. And if you read it, you could get the impression it doesn't sound like gentle rain to me. It sounds like the storm of God's judgment. Is Moses doing a bait and switch on us here? Is he saying at the beginning, I, I want this to be like gentle rain, and then he slams us with a storm of God's judgment? Ha, gotcha. I, I don't think so. As I read that, and I read it multiple times saying, Lord, show me. Lord, what do you want me to see in this verse? I was impressed with this reality. Doesn't this statement, that this teaching, this song coming from God through Moses is to fall on us like gentle rain? What does that tell us about the composer? What does it tell us about God, the composer? He's not out to harm us. He's not out to kill us. He's out there to help us and to give us life the way these people were desert dwellers, the way a gentle rain brings life in the desert. He says, I want my words, I want God's words to fall on you like gentle rain. 
And even as we read in these verses, pretty earth-shaking, soul-grabbing reminders of God's judgment over sin and sinners, we remember his intention, his purpose, is to bring us life, that we would heed the warning and turn from our idols and turn to him and find life. Moses says here at the beginning, ascribe greatness to our God. Why don't we do that right now? I'm going to read now aloud verses 4 through 9, and I want you to pay attention to words, titles, descriptions of God, especially at this time, words that might describe God's greatness. So verses 4 through 9, kids, if you're old enough to read, why don't you read too or look at your parents' Bible, whatever. What words do we find here that might describe God's greatness? The rock, his work is perfect, and all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. They have dealt corruptly with him. They're no longer his children because they're blemished. They're a crooked and twisted generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father, and he'll show you, your elders, and they'll tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the numbers of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. Did you see any words there to describe God as being very great? He is the, the rock. You know, I think this might be the first place in the Bible we read this title for God, rock. And yet, I find it fascinating that in this one song, Psalm, or excuse me, I keep saying Psalm, this one song, Deuteronomy 32, God is described as a rock, I think it's five times. I think it's five times, verse 4, 15, 18, 30, and 31. Five times, the Holy Spirit leads Moses to describe God as the rock. Now, if you care to answer me aloud, please feel free to do that. That's okay here at CCC. When you think of God as the rock, what does that do for you? What does that do in you? What does it make you think of God? Give me some descriptors. He is substantial, strong, steady. Foundation, that's good. Faithful. Immutable, that means unchanging. What was that one? My elderly. Thank you. <laughs> I'll blame it on my 68-year-old ears. <laughs> wonderful words do come to mind when we think about God being the rock. He's stable, he's reliable, he's permanent, he's unchangeable. And in the desert, rocks often provided shelter, um, shade. These weren't little pebbles, these were huge rocks. You could get in the shadow, the shade of the rock, and find shelter. Um, sometimes when King David was on the run, he would go hide in the rocks. And so the rock here pictures so many things that bring us hope, that God is the only steadfast, unchanging source of salvation. There's another word in here about God that maybe isn't quite as obvious, <clears throat> but it describes the greatness of God. If you look at verse 8, <clears throat> in verse 8 he's called the most high. When God's called the most high in the Bible, it often is to point to us God as the sovereign over all creation. 
There are times when titles of God point us to God's care for his chosen people, his elect. But there are other terms for God that make us take two giant steps back. And we say, oh, he's bigger than that. Yeah, he is the God of his people, but God ain't no tribal God. He's the God over all. He is a sovereign over all. And here when Moses, by the Holy Spirit, calls God the God most high, he's reminding us that he is sovereign over all the nations. And so you think about this. Sometimes people wrestle with this whole concept that God has a right to choose people. God has a right to choose or elect people, whether individuals or even the nation of Israel. And I think the difficulty comes with us, not with God. And I think, let me put it this way. Of all the people in the world, how many were the product of God's creation? They all were. If you want to say it this way, God is the author of all people. And if God is the author of all people, then that means he has authority. He's the author of all the peoples, all the people groups. He's the author of all. And as the author of all the peoples, he has authority to do with the people whatever he sovereignly chooses to do. And in Deuteronomy chapter 7, there are some verses, I won't read them out loud right now, but if you're taking notes, you might look at verses 7 through 9 of Deuteronomy 7, something we heard earlier in our study through the book of Deuteronomy. When God says to Israel, I didn't choose you Israelites, I didn't choose you descendants of Abraham, of of Jacob and Isaac, Isaac and Jacob. I didn't choose you because you were the biggest nation, because you actually were quite small. I, I didn't choose you because you were the most powerful. I mean, these were semi-nomadic shepherds. Come on. God says, I didn't choose you because you were many. I didn't choose you because you were powerful. I chose you because I chose you. I chose you because I chose to set my love on you. And so we read this title about God here in Deuteronomy 32 as he's God most high. And that shows us not only his authority over all the people, all the people groups, but it also helps us understand his special love for his chosen people Israel. That he had a right to do that as the author. And he wanted Israel, he wanted the small weak group of people to be at the forefront of his whole plan. He wanted them to be on mission, even as God told their um, ancestor, Abraham, I want to bless you so you can bless all the peoples of the world. He wanted them to be on mission so that they would tell the other people groups about the greatness and the glory of God. That's why in Exodus 19, he says, I made you to be a kingdom of priests. They didn't necessarily live that out, did they? And then we, as New Covenant believers, we read Peter's words in 1 Peter chapter 2 when he says of us, Jews and Gentile believers, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Here it comes. So that you may proclaim the excellencies, plural, you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And if you ever in your dark moments say, Lord, why did you ever save the likes of me? Well, that's not a bad question. And I want to tell you something. I hope this doesn't hurt your feelings. 
But he didn't save you because you were somehow cute or special or intelligent or a theological wizard. He chose to save you so he could make you a trophy of his grace. So that you would be an example to the world that God saves ill-deserving sinners like you and me. So that we would declare the excellencies of the one who called us. And we see that here even in this title, God Most High. We see the greatness of God, the greatness of God on display in this song. But we also see his goodness. Did you see a title for God in this that we already read that might remind us of the goodness of God? Look at verse 6. Is he not your... Your father. Verse 18, it talks about God giving birth to the nation of Israel. Here's an allusion to God's fatherly care for his people, collectively called in the book of Exodus, my son. So God is the father, the great and loving father in heaven of his son, collectively Israel. And he saw them in the desert of Egypt, the desert of their imprisonment, their slavery, And he called them out of that. And he led them for 40 years through the wilderness, showing his presence, showing his care, an amazing picture of God's love. And then when we get to verses 10 through 14, we can see another description of God, God's goodness, that he is the, the savior and the sustainer of his people. Follow along now as I read verses 10 through 14. He found him, Israel, in the desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him and cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them in its pinions. The Lord alone guided him. No foreign god was with him. He made him ride on the high places of the land and ate the produce of the field and he suckled them with honey out of the rock and oil out of the flinty rock. <clears throat> curds from the herd and milk from the flock with fat of lambs, rams of Bashan and goats with the very finest of the wheat. And you drank foaming wine made from the blood of the grape. That here Israel's like a man in a horrible situation and is in a desert. He's in danger of dying without food or water and God rescues him. That God is pictured here in these verses as a caring savior, a caring sustainer of his people. Now I want to mention before we move on the importance of verse 7 again. When Moses is describing God this way as being both very great and very good, he says to the young generation, he says, go ask your fathers. Go ask your grandfathers. Ask the elders. And there's such a commitment here to tell the story of God's greatness and God's goodness. And I read Psalms like Psalm 78 and Psalm 145 where it says one generation will tell another generation about the mighty acts of God. And I want to challenge those of us that are here today who are parents and grandparents and maybe even some great-grandparents that we have a commission given to us by God himself to continue to tell the coming generations about the greatness and the goodness of God. And for the younger generation, don't hesitate to ask your parents, don't hesitate to ask your grandparents about what they've seen of God how they've experienced God's greatness and goodness over the years themselves. It's intergenerational. And I find that comment about it. it was no pagan God that helped you. I mean, God almost has to remind these people looking ahead 
there, there was no pagan God keeping you in the wilderness. It was me. And I think about those of us in the New Covenant, those of us in the New Testament era, that we were in the desert of our sin. We were held enslaved by none other than Satan himself. And yet our Savior came and rescued us. He saves us and sustains us. And therefore we glorify him even in our bodies. So looking ahead, how would Israel, or at least how would many in Israel, respond to this great and good God as they face the coming years? Did you notice verse 14? Curds from the herd, milk from the flock, fat of the lambs, rams of Bashan and goats, very finest of wheat, drinking foaming wine. Maybe that's not stirring your appetite, I don't know. It would have the people back then, I assure you. But God is saying, when you enter the promised land, I'm going to provide so abundantly for you. And even parts of the promised land that don't look that promising when it comes to agriculture, you look at those, those rocks, I'm going to send bees up there to make honey for you. They, that was their sugar. I'm going, to, I'm going to provide the honey for you. You climb up there and you get some of that wild honey. And oil, that's not petroleum, that's, that's olive oil. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to give you olive oil. I'm going to make trees grow in some of the least likely places. I, I just want to show you. I just want to show you very practically how much I love you and how much I'm going to provide for you. That Even areas that don't look like they're going to be that productive agriculturally, I'm going to make sure you get lots of olive oil. I'm going to make sure you've got some sweets to eat. And God's just showing his kindness, his, his greatness that way. So how do you think the people are going to respond to that? That God's very great. He's very good. He's going to provide for them in amazing ways. How are they going to respond to him? Let's read verses 15 through 18. But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then he forsook God and made God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations. They provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. And so here, God has just poured out his kindness, his goodness on his chosen people, Israel, as they enter the promised land. And God says, in the coming days, even though I'm going to provide for you so abundantly, you're going to indulge yourself. You're going to overindulge yourself in my gifts and forget me, the giver. You're going to get fat. And forget who gave you the food. You're going to eat without ever thanking me. Thinking somehow you deserve this stuff. And it's really sad to read all this. And, and there's a title of endearment here that almost comes across as an irony. Jeshurun. It, it's a word that means something like upright ones. And I wouldn't be surprised if God gave them that nickname out of endearment. And yet now it seems so out of character that these people are not going to be upright. They're not going to be faithful. I remember growing up where I did, there was a very large man in our community that went by the nickname Tiny. <laughs> you know, he was tiny. Well, no. <laughs> and it's almost like that here. Here's Jeshurun. Here's the upright ones who aren't upright at all. They rejected God as their father. They're like rebellious children. Remember the fifth commandment to honor the parents? 
And if there were incorrigible teens and young adults, if there were rebellious young people who mocked their parents, they could be stoned for disobeying, for rebelling against their parents. And here, collectively, God's son Israel has broken that commandment to their father, God, and deserved death. They rejected him as God and went whoring after gods that are non-gods. They they're not even real, and yet they think they're real. They imagine them. They have some sort of power they don't have. God calls them demonic. They're breaking the first commandment of having no other gods before God. Is that the way? Is that the way to respond to a God who had chosen them, rescued them, provided for them, protected them? What did Moses call this generation in verse 5? Crooked and twisted generation. Verse 6, foolish and senseless people. So what's God going to do about that? What's God going to do to these this coming generations of Israelites who reject the God who saved them, reject the God who rescued them, reject the God who provided for them so abundantly? How's God going to respond to them? Verses 19 through 25. The Lord saw it and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be. For they are a perverse generation, children in whom there, there's, in whom is no faithfulness. They've made me jealous with what is no God. They have provided me to ang- provoke me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. For a fire is kindled by my anger and it burns to the depths of Sheol, devours the earth in its increase and sets on fire the foundations of the mountains. And I will heap disasters upon them. I will spend my arrows on them. They shall be wasted with hunger, devoured by plague and poisonous pestilence. I will send the teeth of beasts against them with the venom of things that crawl in the dust. Outdoors a sword shall bereave and indoors terror for young man and woman alike, the nursing child with a man of gray hairs. And so God is telling these people, if you, like many of your relatives in Israel, turn their back on me and go running after gods that are no gods, meaningless idols, demonic gods, I'm going going to turn my face away from you. I'm going to hide my face from you. Now we read that and it might not grip us that much, but do you realize, at least in my own estimation, that must be the very hell of hells. What makes heaven, heaven? What makes heaven, heaven? Revelation 22, 4 says, they shall see his face. The best good thing there is, the sumum bonum, the, the very best thing, the best, best thing is seeing the face of God and enjoying his beauty, his grace forever and ever. What is the hell of hells? What makes hell hell? God's grace isn't seen there. God's grace isn't felt there. God's grace isn't experienced there. God turns his face away. And the people of Israel are going to be given a taste of that in the coming days when they turn their back on God. Says, God says, I'm going to turn my face away. I'll tell you what, these people listening to Moses recite this song, that that should shake them in their sandals. It's like, oh, please, 
please, God, no. Don't let me turn my back on you. I want to dwell in your presence. And God says, and I'm going to send some awful consequences. I'm going to shoot all these arrows at them as it were. There's going to be hunger, famine, I'm, plague, poisonous pestilence, harmful beasts, snakes, war. And then God says something that's curious to me, maybe curious to you as well. He says, I'm going to make them jealous. Verse 21. They've treated me like I'm, I'm nobody, and they run after these no-gods, these non-gods. Well, I'm going to send a no-people, the people who aren't my people, to come and to show them their foolish ways. And sooner or later, the Israelites are going to come to the end of their rope. I like what one particular man said, a man by the last name of Craigie. He said, only when the Israelites reached rock bottom would they be able to turn away from the lifeless rock in whom they had sought refuge and turn again to their God, the living rock. Whenever we reach rock bottom, we realize that these imaginary rocks we have sought life in don't bring life at all. These imaginary rocks that we've pursued that we thought would bring us happiness, they, they don't bring happiness. And it's when we're at rock bottom that we turn again to the living rock. So is this the end of the story? Is this the end of the story? Is God telling Moses, tell the people, write the song, Moses, teach them how to sing it, so that they know why it all came to an end, that this is it? Is this the end of the story? Well, many of you know it's not the end of the story or we wouldn't have the rest of the Bible. <laughs> it's, there's no questioning that the Israelites who would abandon God as their father, as their God in the future, deserve punishment, judgment. And yet there's this, there's this really strong hint of hope. Look at verse 26. I would have said, I'll cut them to pieces. I'll, I'll wipe them from human memory had I not feared provocation by the enemy, lest their adversaries should misunderstand, lest they should say, our hand is triumphant. It was not the Lord who did all this. For they're a nation void of counsel. There's no understanding in them. If they were wise, they would understand this. They would discern their latter end. They would, they, how could one have chased a thousand, one have chased a thousand, and two put 10,000 to flight, unless their rock had sold them and the Lord had given them up, for the rock is not as our rock. He's talking about the enemies. Our enemies are by themselves. For their vine comes from the vine of Sodom and from the fields of Gomorrah. And their grapes are grapes of poison. And their clusters are bitter. Their wine is the poison of serpents and the cruel venom of asps. Is not this laid up in store with me, sealed up in my treasuries? Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. There's this hint of hope here that God is not going to finally end his people. He's not going to wipe them from memory. And I think there are several reasons that we can discern from this passage. One is that God has a reputation to uphold. He has his own reputation to protect. Now see, God. one way God was going to get the attention of his chosen people, Israel, was he's going to send pagan nation, a, a non-people, a non-Israelite people, to be a tool in his hand to get the attention of his people. 
And yet, there was this concern on God's heart, if we could anthropomorphize him here. There was this concern on God's heart that if I do that, then those pagan people might have the audacity to say, we did this. How could one of their soldiers make a thousand Israelite soldiers run away? How could two of their soldiers make 10,000 Israelites run away? That, that makes no sense if it's just their own power. No, the only way that could ever happen is if I withdrew my hand. And God says, I don't want this pagan nation to think this is their doing. I will not share my glory with another. And so God, out of protecting his own reputation, says, I'm not going to end the story here. There's another thing God is protecting, and that's his own people. Let's read some more, verses 36 through 43. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there's none remaining, bond or free. Then he will say, where are their gods, the rock in which they took refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering? Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your protection. See now that I, even I, I am he. There's no other God beside me. I kill, I make alive, I wound, I heal. And there's none that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and swear, as I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold of my judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from long-haired heads of the enemy. Rejoice with me, O heavens, bow down to him, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. God has a people to protect. Israel is his chosen people, and though they are rebellious, they're still his son. And like the prodigal father in the story that Jesus told awaits the return of his son, even so God is that loving, gracious father awaiting the return of his son, in this case, Israel. God has a reputation to protect. He has a people to protect. And can I say it this way? God has a plan to protect. Where was the Messiah going to come from? He was going to come from Israel. The coming Messiah, the promised Messiah, the one who was planned from eternity past to come, would come through the means of Israel. He would be a descendant of David, actually. And so God's going to protect that plan. And even this turning away from Israel, this gets a little more complicated here, and I'm going to, this is a long passage, I'm going to talk quickly. <laughs> the song of Moses was repeated generation after generation. And it's interesting, if you move ahead about 1,400 years or so, Paul brings up this song in the book of Romans, chapters 10 and chapters 11, to show us something that's fascinating about God's plan. He says, one reason God turned his back temporarily on Israel was so that he would turn his attention to Gentiles. And the gospel would go to the Gentiles. That's most of us in this room. So the gospel would come to the Gentiles. The Jewish people who see God now bringing the gospel to the Gentiles say, hey, wait a minute. Wasn't that, was, wasn't that meant for us? And so he makes them jealous so they would repent of their sin and turn to Christ as well. And so you see this pattern in the scripture that God wants the gospel to go to all the world. And even this instance of Israel, at least for a season, turning their back on God, all serves God's sovereign plan. 
that the gospel would go to the Gentiles. And apparently, before Jesus comes back, there will be an influx of believing Jews. I know there's different views on that, but I've just revealed mine. <laughs> it's a wonderful that God's protecting his plan. There's an epilogue to this story, this song, and that's the death of Moses. Why don't we go ahead and read it before we wrap things up here. Verse 44, Moses came and recited all the words of this song in the hearing of the people, he and Joshua, the son of Nun. And when Moses had finished speaking all these words to all Israel, he said to them, listen, he said, take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children and that you may be careful to do all the words of this law. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word you shall live long in the land that you're going over the Jordan to possess. That very day, the Lord spoke to Moses, Go up this mountain to Abarim, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab opposite Jericho, and view the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel for a possession, and die on the mountain which you go up and be gathered to your people, as Aaron your brother died on Mount Hor and was gathered to his people, because you broke faith with me in the midst of the people of Israel at the waters of Meribah Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zin, and because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the people of Israel, for you shall see the land before you, how kind of God, but you shall not go there into the land that I'm giving to the people of Israel. Moses was already told he's about to die. He's 120 years old. So he sings, actually he speaks, recites this song that God composed and gave him to teach to the people. Moses appeals to them one last time after 40 years, 40 years. He appeals to them one more time. Listen, listen to the words of God. And then like we see Moses doing repeatedly in the Pentateuch, he goes up on a mountain. But this time he goes up to die. So how does this impact us? You say, I'm, I'm not an Old Testament Israelite. Well, let me say it this way. This song maybe was not written to us, but this song was written for us. Paul, the apostle, picks up on this in 1 Corinthians 10. Let me read to you a paragraph from 1 Corinthians 10. The Apostle Paul writes, by the Holy Spirit, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Does that catch you off guard? Moses looks back, and he says, that all prefigured Christ himself. Nevertheless, most of the, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Listen, now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. And so even though the song of Moses was not sung to us, it was sung for us. We are the beneficiaries in the sense that we read it through our New Testament eyes and we say, ah, the rock is Christ. I, 
I need, I need somewhere to stand that I know is sure, a foundation, something unshakable, something that will give me security, not just today, but forever and ever. And that rock is Christ. Does that help us understand why Jesus said what he said as he concluded the Sermon on the Mount? He said, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house, builds his life on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. But what about people that turn their back on Christ the rock? They're like people that build their house on the sand and the storms of life come and they have no foundation. They have no rock to stand on. They're, they're standing on the futile, fickle things of this world. And when the storms of life come, their life comes crumbling down. Their life just falls apart. Jesus says, listen to me, friends. Build your life. Build your house on me, the rock. Are you building your life on the rock of Christ? You say, he's my rock. He is my foundation of faith. He is my safe place for now and for eternity. If your answer to that is no, I pray that it is no, not yet. And today, today, you listen to Jesus when he says, come and build your house on me, the rock. Let me pray for us as the worship team comes, and I'll come back up and leave you with a word of blessing. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this song that you gave Moses over 3,000 years ago. And Lord, thank you for allowing us to have it in our Bibles so we can learn from it, so that we can take to heart the lessons you want for us to turn from our evil ways, to turn from the idols of this world, and to plant our lives solidly on the rock of your Son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, I thank, thank you so much for what you're doing in this church. And I pray, Lord, that in the coming days you would establish this church to have even a stronger faith, a passionate, thoughtful passion, Lord, for you and for your glory, that we might be trophies of your grace, showing the world your greatness, your goodness, and that others might join us as those who follow you in spirit and in truth. We pray this in Jesus' name, our rock, your son. Amen.